G'day, welcome to Partakers. This is a series of studies called Luke Looks Back, based in the Gospel of Luke, and is presented to us by Roger Kirby. Over to you, Roger. Study 27, from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 46. We will call this, Joys and Sorrows. In this chapter, Jesus is a source of great strength and joy to his disciples as they gather to eat the Passover together. At the same time, betrayal, misunderstanding and desertion surround him. First, we read the first six verses of this chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Question 1. If Satan entered Judas, how responsible was Judas for what he did? When is it permissible for us to say Satan entered somebody? To answer the second part of the question first, it is very doubtful whether we should ever say this. Judas was fully responsible, as he eventually recognised. Matthew chapter 27 verses 3 and 4 say, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the thirty silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. There is an interesting and important parallel in Isaiah chapter 10, where we read, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my, that is the Lord's, anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, that is, Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he, the Assyrian, intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he, that is the Lord, will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he, the Assyrian, says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. So we see in that passage, it is true, both that the Lord in his sovereign power used Assyria to punish Israel, and the Assyrians were completely responsible for what they did. Here, Judas was completely responsible for what he did, even if in so doing 
he fulfilled the greater purposes of the Lord. That may not agree all that well with our logic, but that kind of statement of both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility operating together at the same time is the common teaching of the word of God. As with the arrangements for the triumphal entry, it seems likely that Jesus had prearranged the hire or loan of the room. We read chapter 22, verses 7 to 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Question 2. Luke is not interested in the detailed arrangements for the meal, which must have included things like the sacrifice of a lamb in the temple. What is he interested in? Can you think of any reason for that? Luke is only interested in the human aspects of the story, the depth of fellowship it showed and the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. He draws attention to the way this celebration was repeated in the very early church in his account in Acts. He expected the church to follow the main points of what Jesus did down through the centuries. Question 3. What is the intended symbolism of the bread and the cup? What are the intended symbolisms in the way the elements must have been handled? 
and a personal question, how many of these symbolisms are lost the way your fellowship does it? Bread was the common essential of life in those days. It was nothing special that Jesus used. The loaf had to be forcibly broken, as was the body of Jesus to be. The cup was poured out, but none was spilt, as the blood of Jesus was. The cup represents blood and therefore life-giving death. In addition, this was a Passover meal, so it also carried the symbolisms of Exodus chapter 12, particularly perhaps the redemption under the covering blood and the sense of a meal to be eaten in haste, prepared to go on a great journey of faith. It is up to you to think through how that relates to what your fellowship do when they celebrate this meal. Question 4. Very sadly, the communion service, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the Mass, has become the chief symbol of division in Christendom when it should have been the great symbol of unity. Why do you think this has happened? Unfortunately, men have sought power by claiming they, by reason of some office they hold, and they alone have the right to dispense the elements and control the procedure. Very sad. There is surely no justification for any church or group of churches preventing Christians who are not of their fellowship from participating at the Lord's table. Jesus called it the Feast of the New Covenant. In Genesis chapter 17, we read about the original covenant with Abraham. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read about the covenant with Moses and the Israelites at Sinai. In Jeremiah chapter 31, promises a new covenant, which this is. Many churches never really talk about covenants, new or old, and they lose by not doing so. Now we're going to read in this chapter 22, verses 24 to 38. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me on, in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, 
But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. The dispute of verse 24 about which of them should be considered the greatest must have filled Jesus with dismay as it contradicted all that he had tried so hard to teach his disciples. Question 5. In what ways are we most likely to contradict all that the communion service is meant to achieve in us, even before we leave it? The tendency of men and women to want to feel superior to other people is always present where people gather together. Jesus reiterates his teaching that we are not to seek that superiority for ourselves, remembering that such things will be reversed in the kingdom anyway. Question 6. The instruction to buy a sword is very strange. There is no evidence that the early church ever did this. Should they have? How can we understand these verses? To take this literally contradicts all of Jesus' teaching. He must have been speaking metaphorically. The but now of verse 36 contrasts the approaching situation with that which the disciples encountered earlier when they went out on mission. Now they will have to fend for themselves as the kingdom of God and of Jesus encounters opposition from the powers and the people of this world. The swords are not for active aggression, but are symbols of the defensive situations that will be the common experience of the church in every age. Neither then nor now should we expect to take measures of active defence, passive perhaps, but not active. We read finally in this chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. 
Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Luke's account of Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives is considerably shorter than the accounts of Matthew's in his chapter 26 and Mark in his chapter 14. Question 7. What does Dr. Luke tell us to emphasise the importance of the event? What can we learn about prayer from this account? Only Luke tells us about the physical symptoms of extreme distress in the very heavy sweating. A typical interest in such things from a doctor, then or now. Even here, Jesus bends what he wants to do to the overriding control of God the Father. So should we always do. And so the scene is set for the final hours of Jesus and the beginning of new possibilities in human life. Thanks, Roger. This series is on every Sunday, but as usual on Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk, there is something new available every day to inspire your Christian life.